0: I'm excited. I'm excited, and I hope that you guys will eventually get on board with me this morning. I, I, some, some weeks as a pastor uh, are ups and downs like anyone, uh, but some weeks are just a delight, and this has been... Just a delight for me, and I want to share a little bit of that with you, and I hope that on a small level you get a delight for that. We're starting a new series, uh, we're calling it the Framework Series, and, and the best way I can describe of, of why this series and now is, imagine if your friend said to you today, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch the Lord of the Rings movies." I'm like, okay, what are you going to watch? I'm watching the last one. What was that? The Return of the King? I think it's The Return of the King. Like, awesome. Okay, so what did you think about the other two? Oh, I haven't haven't watched those. Well, well, have you read the books? Oh, no. I'm just going to get to the good stuff. I'm going to get to the battles. And, and, And you'd be like, yeah... You would see Aragorn leading the army of the dead and winning and and, and freeing them from the curse. You would see Smeagol and Samwise Gamgee and Frodo uh, go to Mount Doom. There would be ups and downs. There would be triumphs and victories and and losses. It would be an amazing movie, but you can't do that. (coughs) It is a spoiler, right? Hey, that's on you. If you don't know that Samwise is the hero of that thing, that's on you. I spoiled it for you, but... It's right, it's 70 years old, okay? so, But if you were sitting down and you're about to watch and your friend came in and, and they're like, oh, oh I want to see it, I haven't seen the other two movies, you, you would do one of two things. You'd be like, get out. Get out, come back in a month after you've read the books or two months or, or they're, they're big books, come back in six months or, or watch the movies and then you can see it. Or you would say, okay, well, b- before we start, return of the king you need to know something about hobbits you need to know something about the ring the one ring to rule them all and how it was formed and the battles that went into that you need to know about smeagol and golem about elves and dwarves and and uh wizards and, and, and you would you would begin to tell them what they need to know not because you tell them everything but you would give them a framework for understanding the movie they're about to sit down now That's how we we are approaching this series. Every word from God is worth our attention and and, uh, following. But oftentimes, uh, even in in Christianity, we come to the two-thirds of our Bible uh, and and just focus on that. Man, Like, this is amazing. Look at all the stuff. Look what Jesus does. And and we just want to say that there's actually two-thirds of it that really set that up really well. So, so that you can have a deeper, richer understanding. So that it can fuel your your worship and understanding and knowledge of God and passion. The, the, the Bible is amazing. It is a story. It is telling a, a grand story. It's the greatest story that's ever told. And it's got a narrative arc. It, it starts with a, a creation, what we'll look at today. And, and a fall. And a redemption. And a restoration. And and the. The 66 books of this Bible tell that whole story, but we often neglect the first two-thirds. And rather than just saying, okay, we're going to plow through that, we want to give you a framework. Take the next 10, 11 weeks up until Christmas to understanding some of the very key characters and elements and promises and mystery that is going to unfold in the person and work of Jesus so that you have a deeper appreciation so that when you go back and you, you dive in, you can have an understanding of it. So that, that's our hope with this series, the Framework series, and we're going to start with creation. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the very first book, Genesis chapter 1. As I say, if that's not your first book, come talk to me later, and we'll, we'll chat about that. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is where we'll be. We'll also be hanging out, if you want to find it ahead of time, in uh, Psalm 33, Aaron read some of that for our call to worship earlier today. Psalm 33, Genesis chapter 1. Let me just pray for our time as we kick off this series. So Father, as we come before your word now, I pray that you would stir our knowledge of you, you'd stir our affections of you, that you'd stir in us that which we need most to see and to savor you in this moment. God, I thank you for the truths that are just going to jump off the page and jump off of your creation to us this this morning. Holy Spirit, please make that clear to us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with the very first words. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. In Hebrew, it's three words. In the beginning, God. And, and I love that, that God's word starts like that because uh, uh, we, we, we need to know from the very beginning that God is radically God centered. That this is not ultimately about you or about me. This is the story of God. And that is good news for us because one of the effects of sin, not getting into Matthew's sermon next week too much, but one of the effects of sin is what Luther called in the Latin incurvitus in se. So so we have this diminishing capacity for wonder and awe. We, We curve in on ourselves. In curvetus, in say, and so our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and we begin to just focus on our thing like a, a microscope. We put our problems, our concerns, our desires, our wants on the slide, and we're like, That's what that's big, that's amazing. And we're like, man, I, 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 it's all about me. And, and I posted on Facebook three minutes ago. And I checked a minute ago. But I, I want to see if anyone is liking my stuff to see if my, my post and my thoughts are valuable. And, and if I'm valuable. And, and, and we think, man, I, I wonder if that girl likes me. Or I just really got to close this deal on, on Monday morning. That's all I'm concerned about, this business deal. Or that that guy is better than my husband. He, he knows me. He, he talks to me. He wants to hear my stories. If only I had someone like that. And we begin to turn in on ourselves. And even with this thing called creation, we can twist it to something that is merely for us. And the goodness of it would be like, man, I'm going to live my life for sex. And I'm going to just go after that in every way. And I'm going to get addicted to pornography and all these other things. Or I'm going to live my life for marriage. I won't be satisfied until I get married, until I have that person. And when that person isn't perfect in my life, I'm going to be disappointed with this incurvatus in say. And so the very first words from Scripture says, in the beginning, God, not you, not me, God, pre-existent before there wasn't existence. God. So let's go on because this would take a while if I stop at every line there, but let's just read it through. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Let's just stop right there for a moment. Now, there have been libraries written on every word of what you just read. Fields of philosophy and theology and biology and cosmology and evolutionary theory and, and, and all different things. There is a lot to, to, to pull out of this. There is a lot to say. But, and, I, and, and that's worthy of our times. And those are books worthy of reading. And, and I've taught through this many times in my life. And I've delved into some of those things. But I, I think there's a danger when we get to this to, to miss the forest for the trees. There's a, a danger to be like, oh, let's look at this thing or let's look at that thing. I, I think what we need to do is step back and do simply what we do in our gospel communities every week when we gather around the Word. We ask the first question is, what does this say about God? What does this tell us about God? It, it tells us so much. And again, uh, libraries could be written about that. But, but just on the basic level, what does it say? It, it says that God is an artist he's an artist ex nihilo out of nothing he creates and the universe is formed his mouth speaks and galaxies coming to existence he speaks art into existence out of the darkness that was and the formless and void out of darkness and chaos he makes order and beauty isn't that the aim of every artist from, from your, your your computer screen or your pen and your paper, your paints or, or your, your architectural program, from, from chaos and darkness and void, you want to create art. Well, well, God doesn't need a pen or a brush or any material. He creates by the word of His mouth. He is the artist that is the ultimate artist. That's the first thing we see. But not only that, we see that this is poetry. You know, people that are ignorant of the Bible... And critics of the Bible will point out, hey, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are both telling the story of creation. And they seem to be saying somewhat different things. What's up with that? As if the original author was so ignorant of what they wrote 30 seconds before, they write another thing. They don't understand that often throughout the Bible, poetry and story mix. In Genesis 1, chapter 1, Hebrew scholars have pointed out for a long time that it is, at the very base of it, it is poetic. There's rhythm and repetition. God said, and it was so. God saw, and it was good. And this happens over and over six times. We see it at the very end. It says in verse 31, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. This is poetry. Again, what does that say about God? That God speaks and and, and beauty and majesty leap into existence. But not only that, the word that He would reveal to us, He starts with poetry. God is an artist. He delights in being an artist. And, And did you know what else? Did you see what else is about this? It says, God saw that it was very good. What you need to know, uh, just from a 30,000 foot view, is God really is in to His creation. He really enjoys it. He really, really likes it. He says it's really, really valuable. That's what you need to see, that God would open up His Word with a poem about what He has done in creation, uh, just speaking into existence the universe. Turn with me to... Uh, psalm 33 we already read the first part in the call to worship that we get to be called before a holy god is an amazing thing but in psalm 33 we'll pick it up in, in verse 4 and again this is poetry and the psalmists often return to the theme of god being a creator god and psalm 33 is going to do that as well but But I want to point something out in the poetry here. It says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. So He creates the heavens and earth by the word, and and now the psalmist is telling us more about that. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Now, Look at something. Here's just a quick grammar, Hebrew poetry grammar class. This is a very basic form of Hebrew poetry. It's called parallelism. The, the author's going to say one line and say the same exact thing in, in a different way in the next line. So, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Verse 7. He gathers the, water of the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts them in storehouses. That's parallelism. I point that out because verse 8 is very important that you understand the parallelism. Verse 8. Let the earth fear the Lord. We are commanded to fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth, uh, of the world, stand in awe of Him. So to fear the Lord is to stand in awe of Him. We are Commanded to pursue the discipline of awe. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. You are commanded to pursue the discipline of awe. Sometimes it's not difficult. But again, we have this diminishing capacity for awe in our sin nature, to, to lose the narrative, to get turned in on ourselves. I remember the first time when I was a little kid, my cousins visited from Kansas City, and the first time they saw the mountains, I remember him saying, Oh, mom, dad, look at that. There's mountains. And I was like, What? Oh, those? Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember the first time I traveled to the ocean. I was that kid. I was like, Look at that. It's amazing. You've probably traveled to places that are the most beautiful places on the earth and and the people there are bored. Like, perfect weather. Amazing view. And they're on their phones. And and sometimes you're like, what's wrong with these people? Don't Don't they see? Because we have a diminishing capacity for awe. And God says and commands, stand in awe. And what God commands is for our good what a all of God's commands are for our good but I don't know of a better command than this be in awe do you ever try to pursue the discipline of awe that's why I've loved this week because I've just tried to have eyes to see and the world is it's a magical world at every Turn in every little spot, there is opportunity to be in awe, to stand in awe of God. And so I want to ponder that for a moment. For that, will you, will you drop down the shades for me here? We're going to turn down the lights a little bit and let's just, let's just pursue awe together for a moment. Of course, you could come up with 10 million other things that I'm about to come up with, but nonetheless, here's what I've come up with this week as we pursue awe. Uh, we live in a world that God has created. Not only has He created, but He's given us capacity to appreciate and understand it. He's given us eyes to see and, and taste buds to taste and ears to hear and, and nose to smell. All the senses He's given us, He didn't have to do that. But He delights not only in His creation, He delights to share His awe with us. This should stir in us worship. And so, we've got one of our own, Ethan Finke, up here. We get to hear the first laughs of babies. We get to feel soft puppy fur. This is one of ours right now. Her name's Tilly. She's sold. She'll be gone next week, but... No, good puppy. She's going to a family. We can talk about it. It's all right. (laughs) Just in that moment, you can see awe. You can look at a blade of grass, and there is opportunity for awe. But let's go on, because I'll be here all day if I don't. So uh, we get to taste warm chocolate chip cookies and ice cold milk. We live in a planet where there are humpback whales and two hump camels. We can go to places with lush, green tropical forests with 10,000 shades of green. And we can go to fields of golden wheat. We, we get to smell fresh-cut grass or the salt air of the ocean. And we get to feel both underneath our bare feet. This should cause awe. We get the cherry blossoms of spring and the colors of fall. On this planet, there are things like Mount Fuji, volcanoes, which we'll talk about in a minute. There are rainbows that we get to stand and awe in awe of. You might say, well, you know, Mark, there's a scientific explanation. And the water, the sun comes into the, the, the raindrop and that refracts. And I was like, but that's the point. Genesis chapter 1 says God created from chaos order and He's created physical laws of nature that we can observe and that should cause awe. One physicist I read this week, he said, whenever I discover something in science, I laugh and I look up to God and say, that's how you did that. The fact that we can pursue science is a gift to us. Don't believe the narrative that science and Christianity are at odds. No, by no means. We live in a world that God created all these things and He's made it observable for us to be in awe. When Paul was writing about the fall of man and how uh, we've curved in on ourselves. He says, but, but, but there is something in creation that says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So that men are without excuse. We live in a world that at its core is a boiling, roiling ball of fire, of magma, And every now and again, the pressure pushes out to the surface. That becomes lava, and new islands are being created. And on top of this liquid magma, there are tectonic plates that were floating around right now. And every now and again, they crash into each other, and earthquakes happen, and mountain ranges are built up. That should cause awe. We live in a world of street food, like street tacos and street pad thai. And God lets us enjoy it. We live in a world of quantum physics and three, four defenses. <laughs> we live in a world where caterpillars crawl around and chew on leaves and then they create a c- cocoon and inside the cocoon they literally transmorgify. They dissolve and Alexa told me this week that on average, two weeks later, they come out as butterflies. That's magic. If you could see up close on this one, this one has fur. A butterfly with a fur coat. We live in a world with Disney Parks and Yellowstone National Park. We live in a world with parrots and parrot fish. We live in a world with salts and spices, cinnamons and roots and vegetables, herbs and and a thousand kinds of spicy peppers. Why? Because God likes it. (laughs) And He delights to give it to us. We live in a world with icebergs and impossibly beautiful deserts. We live in a world of granite mountains right outside of our windows and granite countertops in our kitchens. We live in a world of hops and grapes, and even in this picture, 93 million miles away, you can see a star that helps the process go. And we know the process of fermentation, that we'll get beer and wine out of these things, and we know the time and the process, and God has set that up. Oh, there was that one time, though, that Jesus said, i'm skipping all that." And he turned water into wine at a party, at a wedding ceremony. That's the world we live in. We live in a world of chocolate and more chocolate. (laughs) We live in a world of Chick-fil-A, not on Sundays, (laughs) and filet mignon. We live in a world of amazing sounds. The scriptures are very clear that the sounds are, are made a, a, and, and the vision is made and all the things are made to praise the Lord. And so we've got songbirds that sing. And not just the songbirds, everything in creation, including our friend the humpback whale. Turn that thing up. Is it not working? All right. We live in a world where we are invited to praise the Lord, and every now and again we do. The world is full of magic. An opportunity. Psalm 66 says, All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. But that's not all. We live in a universe. And so let's travel out a little bit further to our first celestial object, the moon. We live in a world where we get to the moon. We read about it, or we can read about it, in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 14, and God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to be separate from the day and from the night and let, there, for, let, there, let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So Genesis tells us that God made the sun and the moon and the moon is amazing. It is, appears the same size in the sky as the sun because the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, but also 400 times further away. And so when we get an eclipse, we get to see the corona of the sun. Why? Because God delights to show us that. The moon is big. It's far away. If you drove your car at 65 miles per hour, it'd take about a year for you to get there. Uh, it, it is... Uh, it's big, but, but let's go on beyond that. Let's go to our star. 93 million miles away. Better pack some snacks, though, if you're going to drive to that, because it'll take you 4,000 years at that rate to get there. It, it is massive. A, a, a billion, 100 billion nuclear bombs going off every second it would take the GNP of the United States seven million years to power the sun for one second. It is massive. Uh, one of the books I read this week was by Matt Redman and Louis Giglio, Indescribable. I would highly recommend it, but they helped me understand just how massive this is. They said if the, if the earth was, was a golf ball, can you see yourself on that? The diameter of the sun would be about the diameter of this screen, about 15 feet. So, so there you are, planet Earth, right there. You can fit, I think, 4 million Earths inside the sun. Enough golf balls to fill a, a school bus. But let's go on to some, a, a few other stars. Let's go to the next one. Betelgeist or Betelgeuse. You're like, that just looks like a pixelated image. It is. But, but this thing, don't, don't, don't be confused by the picture. This thing is massive. It, it is twice the size, not of the sun, twice the size of Earth's orbit around the sun. So, if I can remember correctly. So, if, you, if Earth was a golf ball, and you flew your family to New York City and put it on the ground at the foot of the World Trade Center, and backed up and looked up, and then put six more World Trade Centers on top of that, or five more on top of that. Sorry, I don't want to exaggerate. Five more on top of that. This would be the size of Betelgeuse. It's enough to fill a stadium full of golf balls 3,000 times. That's how big that star is. It's just one star in our universe. Let's go bigger in terms of stars. Musifi. Musifi is 100,000 times brighter than our own star. It is, if, you, if, if the earth were a golf ball, you go to San Francisco now and put it at the, the start of the Golden Gate Bridge and then put another Golden Gate Bridge at the end and then fill it with that. That would be the size. But that's not the biggest star in our Milky Way galaxy. For that, we've got to go to V.Y. Canis Majoris. Literally translated, the big dog. And this is the big dog. If the earth were a golf ball, there you are, you'd have to travel to Asia and put it at the base of Mount Everest, and then back up and look and that star would go all the way to the top, six miles high. Again, when you start to talk about creation, it will quickly blow your mind. Um, but let's let's go beyond our because that's just all Milky Way galaxy. Let's go beyond that. Let's go look at some other galaxy. This is the Sombrero galaxy. <laughs> By the way, all these pictures come from the Hubble Space Telescope. You can go to HubbleSite.org. I love it. 1990, NASA launched this thing, funded by your taxpayer dollars, to put on display the glory of God. It is an amazing sight. There are some amazing pictures there. Well, they zoomed into the Sombrero Galaxy. And this is about 8 billion stars in there. Then you would have to travel 27 million light years away now light is fast right the light that left the sun and got here it took 8 minutes and 20 seconds to get here 93 million miles 168,000 miles per I don't know To say it again help me out thank you that's what I was doing 186,000 miles per thank you it's fast we, can, we, we measure some things in light year, but really astronomer, astronomers won't, won't even deal with that because that's too small of a measurement. But for our sake, we're going to do light years because that's the, the best thing I can think of right now. And if you're going to travel to that, it's going to take you 27 million light years to get there. But if you want to travel from one side of the Sombrero galaxy to the other, that's going to take uh, 50,000 uh, 50, light years to cross that. Base. I mean, But don't go across the middle. Because in the middle is a massive black hole. You'll get sucked into that. Who knows what will happen then. (laughs) One more picture here. This is the darling of astronomy. It's called the Whirlpool Galaxy. 31 million light years away. This is uh, the darling because it's just the way that it's uh, situated. To our, our, our the Hubble telescope is amazing. Over here, you say, "What's that going on in the background?" That that is another galaxy in the distance, many, many millions of light years away from it. But but scientists propose that they they call this a grand design galaxy. I love the title of that. It's a grand design galaxy. It's a whirlpool galaxy. They call it grand design because of the very uh, pronounced arms of the whirlpool. And they think that this galaxy in the background is, is creating a gravitational pool that is making those arms form. In the center, in the yellow, is the older stars. And all the red spots you see are star-forming nebulae. Stars are being birthed out of that. This blows my mind. But that's not what blows my mind the most. Just one more picture. This next picture comes from Hubble. And again, 1990 Hubble, went, and this took about 15 years as it, as it went around the globe and took the shots uh, of this one space. Imagine uh, looking at the darkest part of the sky through a straw six feet long and zooming in as far as possible. And they said, let's, let's just see what's in this quadrant. And about 860 shots over 15 years were formed as they zoomed with the ultra deep field scope of the Hubble telescope. And they said, Let, let's see what comes back. And here's what comes back. Those are not stars. Those are each galaxies. Scientists say this is where we can look back in time to, to the, the, when the universe is being formed as we see these galaxies. It's, the the picture is called 10,000 galaxies. Just zooming into the darkest part of the sky. In March of 2021, NASA's on on pace to launch the James Webb Space Telescope. It's going to be an order of magnitude more powerful than the Hubble Telescope. I can't wait to see what's going to come out of that. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 40, 25. He says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. That's not too hard for God to name every star in every one of those galaxies. By the greatness of His might and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. He knows them all. Psalm 8, the psalmist ponders. He says, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. When I look at Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon, the stars, which You have set in place, what is man? It's that You are mindful of Him. And the Son of Man that you care for him. That's a good question. Cuz it doesn't take long when you get into the world of astronomy to figure out that you and I are extremely extremely infinitesimally small. And it feels kind of bad. So we're just in a dinky little galaxy called the Milky Way galaxy in a little suburb of that on a tiny wet planet. What is man that you're mindful of him? But if God is infinite, well, let me just say this. If the point of the universe was for me and you, then yes, this is an oversized universe. But if the point of the universe is to do what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, to display the glory of God, it couldn't possibly ever be big enough. Because He is infinite. He could have made you and me the size of galaxies and we would still be teeny tiny. Because He is infinite. Infinite. That's what you need to understand. So let's come back to our planet for a second. There you are. Wave if you see yourself in the picture. Uh, looks like we had a sunny day in Colorado on that day. The psalmist will go on and say, though the universe is massive, though every star has a name and you hold them and you're mighty and majestic and powerful, you begin to get a sense of why God makes such a fuss. He really likes His creation. Why didn't He just scrap it when all the things went bad? Because God is an artist. And God wants to rescue and redeem it. He wants to use the dark strokes of of sin and brokenness and, and even use those and take them to His Son on the cross to make His glory even greater and greater forever and forever and forever. Oh, you are marked by majesty. Genesis chapter 1. Back to Genesis chapter 1. At the end of that chapter, verse 26 says this, Male and female, he created them. Oh, we might be teeny tiny small in the universe, but we are marked by majesty. We bear the impress of our maker. And though the universe declares the glory of God, it cannot declare the glory of God like you and I can declare the glory of God. We echo who God is. And God wants us to ponder that. He values it so much that he becomes it. He enters into it and he takes it on himself to go to a cross and to die and rescue and redeem us. God is into that. Augustine said it so well. He said, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long course of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. We pass by people that bear the image of God all the time, and we get angry with them. Do you see why God is so adamant that we love one another? Not because we're just brute animals, but as we treat one another, we treat God. We relate to God how we relate to one another. So God cares when there's oppression and brokenness in the world. God cares. And He invites His image bearers to care about those things. Because we are marked by majesty. Let's go back to Ethan. He's an image bearer. He's a miracle. I don't think we need to get into the details, but one cell from his mother and one cell from his father met And can we give it up for the one cell from his father? (laughs) Beating out 8 million others? Nobody should play the lottery. You already won. Like, don't press your luck. You're here. You're a miracle. And the one cell from your mother had 23 chromosomes. And one cell from your, your father had 23 chromosomes. And they came together. And half the DNA from your mother, half the DNA from your father, they matched up to make a 4 billion line code of who you are. You could stretch that DNA out 6 feet. You, st- you have 75 trillion cells in your body. Enough to stretch to the moon and back. 178,000 times you are marked by majesty god delights in you i mean this should cause awe and worship like we we have a lot of doctors and and medical students here like they should be leading the way every week in just full-on worship because they study this every day like, look at this. Look at God's design. Look at the wonder of the image of God that we get to pour ourselves over. Oh, but we've got that incurvatus in-say, that, that loss of awe problem. I get it. I, I was in seminary classes, and we would study the attributes of God. And, and one day, one student said, hey, can we just pause and worship God for that attri- attribute right here, right now? And we are all like, "Oh, oh yeah, we should probably do that too. We lose the awe and wonder, but we are commanded for awe and wonder. And then we can start to see why God would make such a fuss. What about the human eye? most technologically advanced piece of equipment on the planet. Again, the doctors in here could do a much better job than me, but uh, at one point while you were in the womb, one million, one million uh, I'm losing the word here, connectors from the the visual cortex in your brain, and one million connectors from your eye set out to find each other. One million to one million. And they found each one that they were supposed to find, and they connected. In that moment, you had the capacity for sight, but you still had just skin over your eyeballs. And about at the sixth month, Miraculously, a cutting device comes and cuts the slit, and all of a sudden, you have eyelids. I mean, you are marked by majesty. You bear the impress of your Maker. Back to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, it wondered at the God who speaks, and, and the universe leaps into existence. And then it takes a turn in verse 13. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. God sees you. It's amazing that God has named every star in the universe, but it's more amazing that God knows your name and every cell in your body and every day that you will live. Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who stand in awe of him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death so let's pursue the discipline of awe how are you going to do it this week what are you going to do to pursue the discipline of awe what are you going to turn from that that curves in on itself so that you can lift your eyes and see are you going to go on a walk oh it's full of magic if you look you're gonna take a nap? <laughs> maybe you should. Of those seven trillion cells, fifty thousand of them just died, but you just made fifty thousand new ones every three seconds. So you put in some work today. So you deserve a nap. I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe go go eat outside of your tax bracket with good friends. Maybe listen to some music. Maybe write some poetry. Maybe, I don't know, you fill in the blank. Drive up to the mountains and see the colors. Go to hubblesite.org and ponder the creation. There are 10 billion things you can do to stir your awe, but you are commanded. Stand in awe of God. And what would that do to us if we were a people that... Pursued the discipline of all. Man, our eyes would be lifted. Maybe, maybe you're just going to go and sit and watch people. Hey, there's an image bearer. Oh, that person looks like God. That person represents the, the one who created all of these things. Like, just stand in awe. I don't know what it is going to be for you. I, I'm going to be in awe in about 10 hours as I'm on a jet plane to Athens, Greece. Like, we've created planes that fly that far. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. That's, that's awe-inspiring. Well, if we were a people of awe, man, isn't that what the world needs? A people that behold their God and, and are so attractive by their love for God and love for the image-bearers of God. To that end, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the world that you made. Lord, you saw fit to make it, to make it beautifully, to make it massive, to make it for your glory and for our joy. So Father, I pray that we would pursue the discipline of awe this week. Lord, that you would remind us quickly when we get curved in on ourselves that there is so much more to live for. And so Father, I pray that we would be a church that is standing in awe, and even now as we get to worship you, Lord, may we Marvel that you've given us vocal cords to sing your praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.